You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. This is the third part of a, God willing, three-part series on the problem of forensics. It could, and I say this without an atom of hyperbole, be a whole show of its own. And it should be, too. After all, there are dozens or hundreds of shows dedicated to the opposing thesis, that police forensics are somewhere between trustworthy and immaculate. Over the last decade, crime procedurals have consistently made up between 20 and 30% of all scripted American television shows. As of the time I'm recording this, there have been a full 1177 episodes of Law & Order and its many and various derivatives, not including the Chicago franchise, which is theoretically related to it and has 452 episodes in total. NCIS, NCIS Los Angeles, and NCIS New Orleans have 816 episodes between them. CSI, along with its Miami, New York, and Cyber iterations, managed 797 episodes before the franchise petered out, though there are non-stop ominous whispers echoing throughout the shadowy halls of CBS that it could be rebooted at any time. Law & Order and NCIS are the two longest-running television drama franchises in American history, and most of the other top contenders are cop and or forensic shows, too. Grey's Anatomy, Criminal Minds, Hawaii Five-O, NYPD Blue, Bones. I could go on like this for an hour and never even leave the United States. From what I can tell, the BBC is roughly 85% detective shows, with the other 15% comprised of Benny Hill reruns. And don't get me wrong, I love a lot of these shows. I like even more than I love, and watch even more than I like. Anyone who says they've never fallen into a Saturday afternoon black hole of Law & Order reruns has never had basic cable. Or seasonal depression. But the genre is full of deep and disturbing issues. They tend to lionize the police, even when the police are doing immoral and patently unconstitutional things like beating up suspects or charging into houses without warrants. Most anything the detectives and lawyers do in these shows is justified, because by the time the credits roll, they're almost always right. And one of the main ways in which they are proven right, and therefore justified, is through forensics. Television forensic science is practically magic. The crime labs of NCIS or Bones are space-age, Apple-designed holodecks, where blood spatter analysts can practically reconstitute the moment of a crime in full, living color. 
where microscopic fibers can be matched indisputably with a couple of cool jump cuts and where every latent print on every surface is perfectly clear, delivered into a computer that instantly and perfectly spits out the name and mugshot of the bad guy. Any television viewer or moviegoer or fiction reader would be forgiven for believing that the power of modern forensic science is basically limitless. And quite frankly, a lot of real-life criminologists, detectives, and prosecutors are happy to give that impression too. But it's all a fiction. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. We're getting off to a different kind of start today because this is a different sort of episode. Before listening, I would suggest going back and listening to the first two parts as they're going to get referenced mm, somewhat heavily. This episode contains descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and murder that could be disturbing to some listeners. I hope, though, that you will stick with me, even if it gets a little tough, because I think that toughness serves a good purpose, or I hope it does. If I do my job right, it will, and I'm more nervous about that than usual. A lot of people have dedicated their careers and lives to making the arguments that I'm about to glibly paraphrase, and those arguments aren't about abstract matters or long-gone details. They're about life and death, here and now. The overarching thesis is, virtually all forensic evidence is overvalued by courts, juries, and the general public. I know that sounds hyperbolic, and I understand if you're skeptical. But stick with me, because I think I can prove it. Today's episode, How to Solve a Murder, Part 3. On the night of July 24, 1985, a woman in Garland, Texas, received a knock at her second-story apartment door. She opened it and was greeted by a thin, blonde man. She would later describe him as about 5 foot 8, 140 pounds, and very tan. He had on a pair of white pants, and he wasn't wearing a shirt. He said he was there to see a friend, and she told him that he must be at the wrong apartment. He left, and she closed the door and went to bed. She was awoken around six in the morning to the touch of her kitchen knife to her throat. The man had apparently climbed a tree outside her building and from it got onto the second floor porch and through her sliding glass door. He raped her at knife point and then left. The attack was brazen, terrible, and terrifying. And it wasn't the end. Over the next few weeks, she received a series of phone calls harassing and threatening her she recognized the voice instantly as her rapist. In one of the calls, the man told her that he lived in her building and had been watching her for a long time. He still was. The police bugged her phone and took her answering machine tape. A month later, Dallas County Police discovered a man matching the assailant's description at the apartment complex. His name was David Sean Pope, a self-described artsy guy who liked to sing and play guitar. When asked what he was doing there, he said he used to live in the building but had recently been evicted. He said he'd come back so that he could take a shower in the clubhouse gym. The police weren't buying it, and they arrested Pope for driving without insurance on August 28th. In his car, they found a pair of white pants, like the victim had described, as well as a kitchen knife. Later that day, detectives contacted the victim and showed her an array of six photos, including that of David Sean Pope but she was unable to positively ID him. 
A half hour later, they brought her into a room with a one-way mirror and showed her a lineup of potential suspects. Of them, only David Sean Pope was blonde. This time, she tagged him as her attacker, and police charged David Sean Pope with aggravated sexual assault. The prosecution had three main points of evidence, the testimony of the officers who had found Pope near the crime scene, the victim's lineup identification, and the phone calls. Lawrence Kirsta was a researcher with Bell Labs who focused on sound. He helped do acoustic analysis during World War II and the Korean War. In 1960, the FBI commissioned Bell Labs to create a reliable method for identifying people making telephone bomb threats. Kirsta was put on the problem and in 1962 published an astonishing result. He had developed a method by which he could identify speakers by comparing spectrographs of their voices, or what he called voice prints. He advertised a 99% success rate over two years of experiments. Still, like fingerprints and lie detectors, courts were initially reticent to accept this voice print analysis. Throughout the 1960s, Kirsta's testimony was usually excluded from trials. In 1970, Michigan State published a study which showed slightly less reliable results than Kirsta had claimed, 2% for false IDs, 5% for false exclusions, but that was still pretty damn good. Along with a couple of high-profile cases in Minnesota and Connecticut, the MSU study helped bring voice printing increasingly into the American justice system. In 1972, the New York Times published a glowing profile of the then-vindicated Lawrence G. Kirsta. It begins by comparing him to Don Quixote tilting at windmills throughout the 1960s and ends triumphantly envisioning a near future where voice printing is not only put regularly to use at trial, but in medicine, banking, vehicles. The possibilities were endless. And sure enough, voice printing did become a fairly regular theme in criminal and civil trials, including that of David Sean Pope. Would you state your name for the record, please? Larry Howe Williams. You will need to speak up once we bring the jury in, Mr. Williams. Oh, uh, 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 yes, ma'am. State of Texas v. David Sean Pope, February 4th, 1986. How are you employed, sir? By the Houston Police Department as a voice identification examiner. In this particular incident, did you compare the tapes that are numbered here as States Exhibit 13 and States Exhibit Number 22? Yes, they are. Those are the ones you did comparisons on. Yes. For a little while, Williams describes his training. We'll get back to that and his approximate experience. If I were just to ask you to approximate a number of spectrograms that you have worked with and viewed, could you give the judge a rough estimate on something like that? A few thousand. Then they go on to explain the procedure by which the voice print analysis was conducted. Uh, these two tapes were re-recorded onto a reel-to-reel tape recorder, which is built into the sound spectrograph. Then, by utilizing the sound spectrograph, several spectrograms were made. And then, after a complete and thorough examination of both the known and unknown spectrograms produced from the other tape recordings, it was possible to determine a positive identification in this case. Uh, let me ask you if you had an opportunity to do a comparison yourself. Yes, ma'am, I did. And if you formed an opinion? Yes, ma'am, I have. And were you able to eliminate or identify the speakers in States Exhibits number 13 and 22? By that I mean, were you able to state whether or not they were one in the same person? Yes, I was. And what is your opinion as to that? Uh, my opinion is that the voice of the unknown... 
the voice which produced the unknown tape recording was the same as the voice which was produced in the known tape recording. I will pass the witness. Mr. Williams, what is your educational background? Oh, wait, uh, hold on. We'll, uh, we're going to skip that bit for now and just go right to the damning end. Don't worry, we'll, we'll circle back around. You indicated that you arrived at an opinion concerning these tapes. Is that opinion based on any sort of probabilities? Probabilities? Yes. No, not in this case. Not in the manner in which I was taught to do this. Well, you are saying that in your opinion, there is no reservation in your opinion about your determination of these tapes being one and the same person? No, sir. No reservations whatsoever? No. No probabilities of inaccuracy? No. Okay, you are just 100% sure? Yes. Well, that is all we have of this witness, Judge. 100% sure. 100%. Mainly on Williams' testimony, David Sean Pope was convicted of aggravated sexual assault and sentenced to 45 years in prison. Thirteen years later, prosecutors in Dallas County received an anonymous tip that said Pope was innocent, and the actual assailant was a serial rapist who had been convicted of several other serious sex crimes in the meantime. The Dallas County DA reopened the case and ran a DNA test on the victim's rape kit. The results showed the tipster was right. David Sean Pope was innocent. Two years later, he was pardoned by Rick Perry, the first person to be exonerated via DNA in Dallas County. But how could this have happened when Larry Howe Williams was 100% sure of his voice print analysis? Well, okay, a couple of things. First, let's go back to the top of his cross-examination. Mr. Williams, what is your educational background? I graduated from high school at Denison High in Denison, Texas. I have attended the Grayson County Junior College, and then I attended college at the University of Houston. May we assume by that that you do not have a degree from college? That is correct. Okay. What was your particular area of study while you were in junior college and in the other school? Psychology, primarily at junior college, and speech communication at the University of Houston. How many months did you go to the University of Houston? Four. Four months? Three or four. Three or four months in college for communications. That's our expert? So what was his specific training in voice printing? For that, we've got to go back to the prosecution's voir dire. Would you tell the judge about your training and qualifications in this field? I began working in the field in March of 1983 when I attended a school. And I was approved by the International Association of Voice Print Identification in Somerville, New Jersey. Oh, well, that sounds pretty fancy, huh? And eh, it kind of is. The IAVPI was the largest and first accredited organization for voice printing and was folded into the International Association for Identification not long before this testimony was given. But it was formed, organized, and overseen by one man, Lawrence Kirsta. This is a pattern you see over and over again when you look into the history of forensic science. After the Fry case, it became necessary for scientific testimony to be buttressed by a general acceptance within the field. In many cases, that means accreditation by some association, brotherhood, or institute. And frequently, those associations come not through rigorous peer review or committee or committed scientists or investigations of best practices. Instead, 
Like the International Association of Voice Print Identification in Somerville, New Jersey, they're the letterhead, drafted by a single supposed expert who single-handedly birthed the entire field. Not great, huh? I know. But hey, uh, let's not let our stomachs sink into our feet just yet. Sure, the IAVPI was created whole cloth by one man who had a vested interest in confirming and propagating a field he had created, but that doesn't say anything about what it actually took to become certified by the International Association of Voice Print Analysis in Somerville, New Jersey, as a voice print analyst. Could you explain that process, Williams? The training consisted of a two-week school at that location. Two weeks. Two weeks. Get used to me screaming small increments of time, because I have a feeling it's going to be something of a leitmotif. At this point, you're probably not surprised that David Sean Pope was wrongly convicted. The expert who testified against him, after all, turned out to be a guy with half a semester of speech classes and a two-week conference course under his belt. But that's barely half the problem. Williams went on to say that he had two years of in-the-field training and 14 years on the job which sounds a lot more convincing than the vacation Bible school worth of formal training. But it's not. Hell, you could give Larry Howe Williams 50 years of experience and a decade of formal training. It still wouldn't make a difference. Because voice printing isn't science. All the way back in 1976, just six years after the Michigan State study that helped bring Kirsten's method into courts around the country and the whole world, and 10 years before Williams testified against Pope, the FBI asked the National Academy of Sciences to do their own study of the field. The NAS committee handed down a 160-page report that stopped just short of condemning voice print testimony entirely. The spectrographic analysis which Williams showed off before the court was, according to the NAS, quote, based on limited knowledge about properties of voice sounds with unanswered questions about statistically valid representations of voice populations. In the committee's conclusion, it argued that a national system of objective standards needed to be created before voice analysis was accepted, and that analysts, like Williams, needed to be regularly tested and evaluated. None of that was done. Instead, the industry cherry-picked from this damning report to say that the NAS had, in effect, validated voice printing as a probatively useful science. The FBI gave bad voice printing testimony in dozens of cases before they bowed to the NAS report and shut down their department. But in 35 states, spectrographic voice analysis is still permissible evidence in courts. And we can't talk about singular Abrahamic experts birthing entire forensic fields of their own devising without talking about Herbert McDonald. The best time and place to enter McDonald's story is Orangetown, New York, in the Palisades, on May 13, 1967. That day, outside of the Orangetown Animal Hospital, which he owned, veterinarian Stephen Schaff shot and killed 20-year-old Robert Nowick. That much everyone agreed upon, and Dr. Schaff was arrested. At trial, the question was why he'd done it. According to the prosecution, the motive was jealousy. Schaff was in love with a 33-year-old divorcee named Patricia Georgie, and Robert Nowick was shacked up with her. So, Schaff had deliberately murdered him with a shotgun while Nowick sat in his Volkswagen bus. The defense gave a much different sequence of events. According to them, Nowick was a disgruntled former employee of Schaff's animal hospital and had come by angrily and threatened the vet. 
Schaff had come out with the shotgun to chase him off the property. Then, Nowick had opened the car door, which bumped the barrel of the gun, causing Schaff to discharge it accidentally into the victim. So, the shooting was either premeditated murder or involuntary manslaughter, depending on... Hmm. Well, on what, exactly? Which story sounded most convincing? That's not a very confident reasoning, is it? There had to be a better way to determine what had really happened. And that is where Herbert McDonnell comes into the scene. Herbert McDonnell was born on July 23, 1928, and grew up in Bolivar, New York. From a young age, he was interested in chemistry, which he studied in college at Alfred University. He graduated in 1950, and then, very curiously, was named professor of chemistry at Wisconsin's Milton College the next year, even though he only had a bachelor's degree and no professional experience at all. I can't find any explanation for how that could have happened, other than that Milton was a small school that was suffering from bad finances, or maybe McDonnell was just that impressive. He left Milton four years later for the University of Rhode Island, where he earned a master's in analytical chemistry. As part of his studies, he worked at the state crime lab, which was part of the university, and through that became interested in a focus on forensics. His master's thesis was written on blood typing and staining. After graduate school, he got a job as a chemist for Corning Glassworks, which he kept for many years, but in the background, he was teaching courses in forensics at the local community college, touring with his old boss at the Rhode Island State Crime Lab, and, starting in 1957, consulting on cases. In 1961, he developed the Magna Brush, the bristleless applicator used with magnetic powder to dust for fingerprints. Two years after that, he became the first expert witness to testify in an American courtroom about breathalyzer evidence. And the next year, he was named a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Science. But the start of McDonald's real legacy would come at the trial of Dr. Stephen Schaff. The question of what happened, McDonald realized, wasn't as unknowable as it first appeared. According to Dr. Schaff, the shooting of Robert Nowick had been accidental. Nowick had flung open the door of his Volkswagen bus, hitting the shotgun, causing it to discharge. According to the prosecution, it had been intentional. Schaff had approached the bus and fired through the open window. Between these two accounts, there was one key physical difference. In the district attorneys, the door to Nowick's van was closed. In the defenses, it was open. Way back in the opening of part one, we talked about Lacard's exchange principle, which Manhattan Project scientist and forensic scientist Paul L. Kirk explained as follows. Wherever he steps, whatever he touches, whatever he leaves, even unconsciously, will serve as a silent witness against him. Not only his fingerprints or his footprints, but his hair, the fibers from his clothes, the glass he breaks, the tool mark he leaves, the paint he scratches, the blood or semen he deposits or collects. All of these and more bear mute witness against him. This is evidence that does not forget. It is not confused by the excitement of the moment. It is not absent because human witnesses are. It is factual evidence. Physical evidence cannot be wrong. It cannot perjure itself. It cannot be wholly absent. Only human failure to find it, study, and understand it can diminish its value. McDonnell had studied Kirk extensively and believed in his description of Lacard's principle. He also believed in Kirk's work, which was mainly focused, as McDonnell's thesis had been, on blood. 
In the case of Dr. Stephen Schaff, the blood would tell McDonnell everything he needed to know. Robert Nowick had received a shotgun blast at short range in his car. That was the kind of event that led to a lot of blood. It didn't just seep out from the wound, it was blown with force and velocity around the crime scene, including on the interior of the Volkswagen's driver's side door. Naturally, when a car door is closed, some of that interior, along the edges, is covered by the frame of the vehicle. And when the door is open, all of that trim is exposed. This presented a simple, logical, incontrovertible test. If there was blood on the interior trim of the door, it must have been open when the shot was fired, which would mean that Dr. Schaff was telling the truth. Indeed, there was, and it was, and he was. In court, Herbert MacDonald testified that the, and here's the important item for you, blood spatter on the interior of Nowak's door proved that the prosecution's case was impossible and that Dr. Schaff had fired accidentally when the door was opened. Schaff was convicted, not of first-degree murder as the AD had tried, but of manslaughter and sentenced to three and a half to ten years in prison. He served most of his time on work release caring for horses. Herbert MacDonald was slightly miffed. He thought his testimony should have been enough to get Schaff off entirely, but the case had opened up a world of possibilities. He now knew that he could solve violent crimes through the blood stains left at the scene. The next year, he got a grant to study this new train of thought, and in 1971, the Department of Justice published his results. In under three years, Herbert MacDonald had founded a new branch of forensic science, bloodstain pattern analysis. He quit the Corning Glassworks to become director of the auspicious Laboratory of Forensic Science, where further research was conducted, classes taught, and testimony sought. If there's one thing that police procedurals love, it's blood spatter. CSI, NCIS, Law & Order. Hell, there was an entire television series dedicated to a blood spatter analyst, who was also a serial killer who only killed other serial killers, but lucky for him, there were like hundreds of them just padding around downtown Miami, I guess. And in the flashbacks from when he was a teenager, they just put a wig on him, and it was very bad, y'all. But I digress. I think there are three reasons why blood spatter became such a go-to trope in film and television. For one, it's really convenient, narratively. You can show your audience a shape made out of blood that they can clearly see but make no immediate sense of. Then, your detective or your crime scene investigator or your bloodstain analyst slash serial killer serial killer can walk around, look at everything, connecting strings from one point to another until, ta-da, a flashback recreation of the crime perfectly realized that accounts precisely for the blood shape the audience just saw. And if you are that audience, you say, Ah, I get it now. This is narrative mystery boiled down to its essence. It's a puzzle, a magic trick, where all the cards are on the table with you waiting to see how it pulls together. It is the most addictive, satisfying, and potentially dangerous element of story. And I should know. The second reason TV and movies love blood spatter so much is the aesthetic. It's visually striking. You can build out cool, high-tech, blindingly white laboratories and then spray flashy bright red all around them and cool slow-mo and dissolves and jump cuts, and it's all very impressive. And we'll come back around to the third reason momentarily. First, let's emphasize that the first two are absolute nonsense. 
that space-age, Apple-inspired lab with the lasers and high-speed cameras and whatnot, that doesn't exist. In fact, the very officious-sounding Laboratory of Forensic Science, it was Herbert McDonald's basement. From there, he conducted all of his research, thinking up thousands of ways to spread blood on surfaces, stabs and punches and gunshots and chair legs and sword slices and falls and headbutts and so on and so on and so on. Of course, there's nothing wrong with working from a basement and nothing definitively unethical about giving your basement a cool, prestigious-sounding name, but it does make a very different kind of impression, doesn't it? Would judges have been so happy to welcome McDonald's expertise into their courts if they'd known his experiments were being done amid chintzy college posters thumbtacked onto cheap wood paneling? What if they'd known that he sometimes shot dogs in order to produce gunshot blood spatter? or asked his female students to soak their hair in blood and then throw their heads back while he filmed them. What if they knew he was also quietly trying to found another branch of forensic science, which he called fingernail identification, that he spent 20 years saving his own clippings for? But hey, he was a bit eccentric. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Plenty of great scientific discoveries have been made by eccentrics, probably a majority of them. None of his supposed weirdness, including dressing up like Sherlock Holmes, has any material bearing on the science. Except it wasn't, and it isn't, science. In 1977, Jeffrey Hall was arrested for the murder of his girlfriend, Barbara Johnson, in Esterville, Iowa. On the night of June 13th, Hall came to the door of Johnson's neighbor, David Brent, covered in blood, asking for help because, he said, someone had killed Barbara. He showed Brent a broken knife that he said he had pulled out of her. There were a couple of other witnesses, including another neighbor who awoke to the sounds of screams and witnessed two people arguing on the patio. A few minutes later, that witness saw Hall dragging Barbara's body towards his car. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Hall probably did it, and that is what the jury found, too. He was convicted of murder. But what's important for us here is that McDonald testified against him, and in the appeal, this case became the first time a state Supreme Court ruled on his testimony. Hall's story had been that when he discovered Johnson's body, he thought she might still be alive and that he had tried to get her into his car to take her to the hospital. In the process, he'd gotten a lot of blood on him. But McDonald said no, that his expert analysis of the blood stains on Hall's clothes showed he'd been sprayed with the victim's blood when he stabbed her. Among many other points in his appeal, Hall's defense argued that McDonald's bloodstain analysis should not have been admitted. They said that it wasn't science and it wasn't proven. But the Iowa Supreme Court disagreed. Actually, that's not exactly right, because as we know from part two of this series, the rule for admitting scientific evidence and expert testimony was, and in many cases is, the Fry Standard, which, to quote from the Fry decision one last time, holds that the thing from which the deduction is made must be sufficiently established to have gained general acceptance in the particular field in which it belongs. And had McDonald's bloodstain analysis gained acceptance in its field? The Iowa Supreme Court said yes, for several reasons. The kind of testimony McDonald had offered was taught in schools, police departments, and national training programs. There were seminars and publications about it. There were national and state organizations for experts in the field. And McDonald, his expertise, and his experience were held in high regard throughout. 
What the court either didn't realize or didn't care about was that this was one big Ouroboros, a Gordian knot of data that, when untangled, revealed a perfect circle. The national training programs? McDonald started and led them. The police departments and class instructors were trained by him. And the organizations, seminars, and publications were all formed either by him or his students. Iowa's Supreme Court failed to note any of that. And worse still, they failed to concern themselves with one other key question. Were his conclusions reliable? That wasn't important. The Fry standard didn't really have anything to say about how the conclusions were determined, only whether they were generally accepted within their field. And McDonald's were, of course, because he was the field. Over the next few years, bloodstain analysis found its way in more courts in more states, first Maine, then Tennessee, then Oklahoma, Illinois, Mississippi, Texas, Indiana, Minnesota, Idaho, North Carolina, Michigan. Many of the cases that set those precedents represent further kinks in the knot. One state accepts the testimony because the other had, and then another says yes because they both did, and then a fourth says, well, they did, so... McDonald wasn't the expert in all of these cases, either, although he was frequently enough that it probably should have caught someone's attention. McDonald became a big shot, testifying mainly in sensational cases, like the O.J. Simpson trial, where he told the jury that the bloody glove could not have shrunk since he had soaked an identical glove in a Tupperware container of his own blood, and it had not. It was McDonald's students and his students' students who began setting precedents in their testimony across the country. These were trained criminologists and police officers who had studied at the feet of the master of blood spatter, and more often than not, their word was as law. When defense attorneys were on the ball, they might learn that the accredited training McDonald offered, which represented the trunk of the tree from which every branch stemmed, consisted of a grand total of 40 hours training, culminating in a written exam. Of the at least a thousand students he taught, McDonald could think of only five who had failed to pass. In 2012, Howard McDonald was accused of sexually abusing two girls. He was charged with two counts of endangering the welfare of a child, forcible touching, exposure, and aggravated harassment. He pled guilty to the second-degree harassment charge, a Class A misdemeanor, in exchange for having the rest of the charges dropped. McDonald would later say that he took the deal on the advice of his attorney, that he regretted it, and that the allegations against him were baseless. That is exactly the sort of thing a defense attorney would advise an innocent client. It happens all the time. But whether that was the case in this instance, I couldn't possibly say. Regardless, McDonald's testimony was now toxic. He retired the same year, seemingly to avoid disgrace. But it wasn't the end of bloodstain analysis, even though McDonald was the poison tree from which all that fruit grew. And that's as it should be. I don't know what sort of person Howard McDonald really was and what was true about him. He died in 2019 and his obit is full of love and affection. It details how he and his wife, Phyllis, who he was with from childhood through to her death just two years before his, were unable to have children and so helped raise a series of 10 girls and four boys who considered them their true and loving parents. But it shouldn't matter one way or the other to the science. Whether the worst things about McDonald are true or the best or both, in a perfect world, his techniques, discoveries, observations, and procedures would rise and fall on their own merits. When we come back, I'll show you just how far from that world we are.
Since 2006, The Skeptoid Podcast has been revealing the true science, true history, and true facts behind more than 750 of our most popular urban legends and mysteries. Each episode of Skeptoid looks at a famous story you know and reveals the part of it you haven't heard. Skeptoid doesn't just stop at the popular legend version of the story, and it doesn't just debunk it. Host and science writer Brian Dunning always goes the extra mile, tells you what we know, how we know it, and what the actual solution to the mystery really is. Consistently one of the top-ranked social science podcasts, Skeptoid has won award upon award over the years, including Best Education Podcast at the Podcast Awards and Best Science Podcast from the Stitcher Awards. The best thing about Skeptoid is that it gives the solutions to practically every mystery you've ever wondered about. These aren't just guesses. Skeptoid tells you what we know and how we know it and gives exhaustive, authoritative references for everything from the Amityville Horror to Chemtrails to the JFK assassination and even some of my favorite bugbears like Free Energy and Perpetual Motion. Find out why everyone is listening to Skeptoid. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Skeptoid. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, BetterHelp is here for you. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since it's available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Before we pick things back up, I feel the need to say that at this point, the episode is going to get much more disturbing, and then it'll only get worse from there. It's not something I revel in, but rather an unavoidable consequence of talking about crime and punishment. Both sides, the crimes and the punishments, are upsetting. But we need to explain the former to explain the latter, and we need to explain the latter because it is, I believe, a moral imperative that the citizens of a free country understand the effect of its democratic policies upon the people. So, I hope you'll bear with me, and I'm sorry to have to talk about a lot of what follows. I'll try to take good care of you. All right, here goes. Forensic science had always been suspect, and a lot of people had suspected as much. But it was only in the late 80s through the early aughts that the scope of the problem began to clarify. The first canary in the coal mine was named Gary Dotson. On July 9, 1977, a police officer in Homewood, Illinois, a southside Chicago suburb, discovered a 16-year-old girl named Kathleen Crowell standing on the side of the road. Her clothes were torn and dirty, and she was crying. Kathleen told the cop that she was a cashier at the Long John Silvers at the mall. After she finished her shift, she was walking across the parking lot when a car squealed up beside her. Two male passengers jumped out and dragged her into the back seat. Then one of them got up front with the driver, while the other man climbed in back beside her. Kathleen said he tore her clothes, raped her, and then took a broken beer bottle and cut some letters into her belly with it. After two hours, they threw her out of the car and drove off. The policeman escorted her to South Suburban Hospital, where she and her effects were examined. They found what they called a seminal stain on her underwear, along with several pubic hairs, which were also recovered from her person. In addition to the standard vaginal swab, the doctor examining Kathleen Crowell also recorded his impressions of the injuries to her stomach. He thought that the cuts might have been spelling out the words love and hate, but the scratches were too superficial to make out for sure. A few days later, she described her assailant to a police sketch artist. He was young, white, clean-shaven, with shoulder-length hair. A couple days after that, she was shown a photo array, from which she picked out the mugshot of Gary Dotson. Dotson was arrested and held for the better part of two years before his trial began in May of 1979. The prosecution offered two witnesses. The first was Kathleen Crowell herself, who ID'd Dotson as her attacker, telling the court, there's no mistaking that face. The defense, in contrast, called four witnesses, friends of Gary Dotson, each of whom testified that they had been with Dotson the night of the assault, drinking, watching TV, and visiting a couple of parties. We're back at that critical question again. Crowell says Dotson did it. Dotson says he was with friends at the time. How to square that circle? Well, that's what the state's other witness was for. Illinois State Police forensic scientist Timothy Dixon. Dixon was an impressive expert. In voir dire, he described his expertise as deriving from graduate work at UC Berkeley, along with his tenure working for state police. He identified in the seminal fluids present on Crowell's underwear antigens from what is called a type B secretor. 
everyone has a blood type along the lines of A, B, AB, or O. Beyond that, there are positives and negatives. And beyond that, there are secretors and non-secretors. Non-secretors only have their ABO antigens present in their blood. Secretors, on the other hand, produce those antigens in other bodily fluids, including semen and vaginal discharges. Secretors lead non-secretors 80-20. But B is the rarest blood type, and Dotson had it. Dixon put the odds that a man other than Dotson was responsible for the semen at 10 to 1. Then he turned his attention to the pubic hairs, which he testified were, quote, microscopically similar to Dodson's. During his closing statement, the prosecutor, Raymond Garza, told the jury that the hairs matched. Dodson's public defender, Paul Foxgrover, objected, saying that was an exaggeration. The judge overruled him. The jury found Gary Dodson guilty on one count of rape and one count of aggravated kidnapping. Judge Richard L. Samuels gave him 25 to 50 years for each to be served concurrently. Dotson's attorney appealed, citing Garza's exaggerations and inconsistencies in the evidence. The appellate court upheld the conviction in 1981. The next year, Kathleen Crowell married and the couple moved to Jaffrey, New Hampshire. In 1985, she approached her pastor at Pilgrim Baptist Church in Jaffrey, Carl Nanany, with a confession. When she was 16, back in Homewood, Illinois, she said, she had engaged in premarital sex with her high school boyfriend, David Byrne. She was afraid she would become pregnant and afraid what her parents would say. So the next day, when she was done with her shift at Long John Silver's, she had torn and muddied her clothes and attempted to shallowly cut into her stomach. She said she had never wanted to get anyone in trouble and hadn't thought that her story would be anything more than a cover it hadn't occurred to her that police would try to find her non-existent rapist. She said that police had pushed her into identifying Gary Dodson's mugshot and had ignored that she had described her attacker as clean-shaven, even though Dodson wore a mustache. She had never, up through the trial, thought he might actually be convicted. And she was so, so sorry. Reverend Nanini reached out to a former parishioner, John McLario, a lawyer in Wisconsin, who agreed to take on Kathleen's case. He figured he would reach out to the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, tell them the truth, and they would release Gary Dodson. They didn't return his calls. So, McLario took the story to a reporter for the Chicago ABC News, who aired it on March 22, 1985. The state's attorney then decided that this should all be fought in the press. The next day, they slipped unsourced comments to the Chicago Tribune, calling Crowell unstable. All the same, on April 4th, Judge Samuels ordered Gary Dodson's release on bond, pending a new trial, set for a week later. He seemed ready to dismiss the charges altogether until the new prosecutor, J. Scott Arthur, told the court that they had managed to contact David Byrne. Crowell's high school boyfriend, and that he had agreed to undergo tests to compare his blood type with the secretions found in Crowell's underwear. The day before the second trial, the prosecution leaked the results of that testing to the Chicago Tribune, which reported on their direct behalf that Byrne's samples did not match. Byrne was type O. This would turn out to be misleading. On April 11, 1985, Judge Samuels revoked the bond and returned Dotson to the big house. Two years later, Illinois Governor Jim Thompson personally granted his clemency request. 
and Kathleen Crowell personally gave him $17,000, the advance on a book she was working on. But the saga wasn't over. Effectively, Gary Dodson was paroled. He married, had a child, and moved to Las Vegas. But two years later, he was rearrested following a domestic dispute, and that parole was effectively rescinded. He would have to serve another 16 years in prison for a crime his victim admitted she fabricated. Luckily for Dodson, his attorney had read a 1987 article in Newsweek about a new technology that might have huge implications for forensics. DNA testing. Eventually, a test was secured, and eventually it proved that the semen did not belong to Gary Dodson. In fact, it wasn't semen at all, but vaginal secretion. During the first trial, Timothy Dixon had testified that there was a 1 in 10 chance that the type B antigens found in the underwear belonged to a different man. He neglected to mention that Kathleen was a type B secretor too. He also made up his UC Berkeley education. Nine months after the results of the test were handed over to the state, Gary Dodson became the first American to be exonerated based upon DNA evidence. And he was hardly the last. As DNA testing became more common, so too did exonerations. Hundreds and thousands of them, many for people awaiting death sentences. With that seemingly endless stream of revealed false convictions, people began having doubts and questions. When reporters dug into crime labs, they almost invariably found misconduct, mistakes, and misrepresentation. Over and over, year after year, jurisdiction after jurisdiction. Finally, Congress passed a bill calling for the National Academy of Sciences to conduct a thorough investigation of the state of forensic science in the United States of America. NAS had already torpedoed voice printing and comparative bullet lead analysis, a debunked theory that each batch of lead used in bullets had a unique chemical makeup, which the FBI used in perhaps hundreds or thousands of false convictions. Now, NAS had a mandate to look over the whole kit and caboodle. In 2009, they published Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, A Path Forward, a 350-page document that absolutely shredded the industry. Bloodstain pattern analysis, tool mark and firearm identification, hair and fiber, handwriting, bite mark analysis, and even the mother of them all, fingerprints. Yeah, fingerprints. On the morning of March 11th, 2004, a series of bombs went off almost simultaneously on four commuter trains around Madrid. 193 were killed and more than 2,000 injured in the deadliest terrorist attack in Spanish history and the worst in Europe since the Lockerbie bombing in 1988. After the bombing, a bag filled with detonating devices was found with fingerprints on it which the Spanish National Police shared with Interpol and the FBI. The FBI identified them as belonging to Brandon Mayfield, an American attorney practicing family law in Portland, Oregon. He might seem like an unlikely culprit for a Spanish terrorist bombing to you, but the FBI thought differently. They knew that Mayfield had converted to Islam and represented Jeffrey Leon Battle in a child custody case. Battle was known as one of the Portland Seven, seven American Muslims who were arrested in 2002 in an FBI sting accused of trying to join Al-Qaeda. That religious profiling, along with the fingerprint match, which the feds described as 100% verified, 
convinced them that Brandon Mayfield was responsible for the Madrid bombing. He was arrested as a material witness on May 6, 2004, and held without charge or access to counsel. Two weeks later, Spanish authorities identified that they had found the owner of the fingerprints. Not Oregon family attorney Brandon Mayfield, but Algerian national Onani Daoud. How could this have happened? Well, for one, Islamophobia. For two, Islamophobia. For three, Islamophobia. But even setting aside the racial and religious prejudice, which takes some serious doing, there are still more problems. Let's go back, finally, to People v. Jennings, the first American fingerprint case we talked about in part two. What if I told you that the four fingerprint experts called to testify against Jennings were all Chicago cops, and that the entire scope of their expertise was that they had gone to the St. Louis World's Fair and attended a two-day seminar with Scotland Yard. Two days. On their word, Jennings was executed. So, there's the first non-racially and religiously biased issue. What constitutes an expert? The second, we can see if we look closer at the Mayfield affair. The FBI may have called the match 100% verified, but it absolutely was not. On television and in movies, fingerprints tend to be clear, crisp, perfect, in a way that those found on actual crime scenes virtually never are. Most prints are partial, or smudged, or low resolution, or all of the above. And they have to be interpreted by human experts, not fed into a computer and spit out with pinpoint accuracy. In the Madrid case, the FBI initially found 20 people who were likely matches to the bomb bag prints. Then they narrowed it down to Mayfield after looking into his personal life. But somehow, in that process, it became 100% verified. We can go back to that Paul Kirk quote one last time. Physical evidence cannot be wrong. It cannot perjure itself. It cannot be wholly absent. Only human failure to find it, study, and understand it can diminish its value. These are the first two potential problems with fingerprints, that the evidence is sometimes partial, and the human ability to find, study, and understand it is finite. But there's still another problem. The art of fingerprint analysis, oh, you heard me, the art of fingerprint analysis, rests upon a presumption that typically goes unquestioned that no two sets of fingerprints are identical, that each print is unique. Am I about to tell you that's not true? No, because I don't know whether it's true. And neither does anyone else. It has never been scientifically studied or verified. What I do know is that after the Mayfield kerfuffle and a similar case in Edinburgh where Officer Shirley McKee's fingerprints were found at a crime scene she had nothing to do with, a researcher at Southampton University named Itchrell Dorr decided someone had to look closer at just how reliable this fingerprint jazz really was. Dorr gathered six of the foremost fingerprint analysts from around the globe and showed them eight prints each taken from real crime scenes and eight ink marks taken from suspects surrounding those cases, and asked these world-renowned experts to match or exclude them as they deemed proper. What the experts didn't know is that the prints were all from cases that they had already previously worked in real life. Six experts, eight prints, 
a total sample size of 48 results. In six of them, the experts came to different conclusions than they had the first time when the prints were part of an actual investigation. Only two of the experts were consistent throughout all eight of their tests. That's an error rate, minimally, of 12.5%. I'm sorry, I have to scream Pete that. 12.5% error rate for fingerprints. Now, that number is from one study with a very small sample, but others have since been conducted. A study out of Miami-Dade Police Laboratory found an error rate of 1 in 18, which sure is not very good either, while an FBI study proved far more sunny with an error rate of only 1 in 306. Still disturbingly high. In 2009, the NAS report stated that fingerprinting is, quote, not specific enough to qualify as a validated method for this type of analysis and goes on to say that while fingerprinting has the facial appearance of science, that does not imply that one is proceeding in a scientific manner or producing reliable results. It concludes that none of the work being done in fingerprint analysis has been properly scientifically characterized, quantified, or compared, and that lacking any actual statistical data, the whole field is in fact based on the expert's common sense, not information, not research. To get more recent, in September of 2017, the American Academy for the Advancement of Science released its own study on fingerprinting. There is no basis for estimating the number of individuals who might be the source of a particular latent print. Hence, a latent print examiner has no more basis for concluding that a pool of possible sources is probably limited to a single person than for concluding it is certainly limited to a single person. In reality, there is not, at present, an adequate scientific basis for either claim. We have concluded that latent print examiners should avoid claiming that they can associate a latent print with a single source, and should particularly avoid claiming or implying that they could do so infallibly with 100% accuracy. Compared to many other fields of forensics, fingerprints do pretty well. Take comparing bite marks, for instance. That seems like a pretty straightforward thing. Medical examiners use dental records to identify remains, after all, and nobody much questions the reliability of that. But whether or not a bite mark, taken from an object, food, or flesh, can be accurately matched to those dental records is a total and complete scientific unknown. It could be, but there is literally zero evidence to say if bite mark analysis is any better than throwing a witch in cold water to see if she floats. That's not a flippant comparison. Back in part one, I said that one of the debates about ordeals in academia is whether or to what degree they actually worked. Because there are good arguments to be made that things like the trial of hot iron maybe did actually ferret out the guilty sometimes. Given a world in which people believed in the power of an ordeal, it might have had some psychosomatic power, or might have encouraged the guilty to confess rather than undergo them. There's one version of the hot ordeal in which a hot iron is touched to the tongue of the accused, and a few scholars have suggested that nervousness might have dried the mouths of the guilty, making them more susceptible to burns than the innocent. That's a fascinating hypothesis, but it's hardly a good basis for saying ordeals worked, is it? They certainly didn't work the way society depended upon them to. And in that sense, we haven't actually made a whole lot of progress since the European Dark Ages. 
Of course, forensic evidence today is, on measure, far better than having suspects touch bodies to see if they bleed. But just like in the past, we have a level of faith in our forensic techniques which the evidence does not support. You know, initially I had planned on just making one part of this series, just talking about ordeals and cruentation and all that funky old-timey stuff. But it occurred to me as I worked on it that to end the story there would be like a tacit endorsement of our modern system. And that would be, I figured, deeply irresponsible. So I started shaping this into the series you're now nearing the end of. And I'm rightfully nervous about it. I don't generally swim in these sorts of waters. Everyone knows fingerprints work. Everyone knows that. We know that from television and film. But we also know it from the justice system and the criminologists who study them. I kept diving into the evidence and doubting it, just purely on the crude social force that pushes against skepticism. After part one was released, I got a letter from a listener, Isabel, who was formerly a fingerprint analysis in Edinburgh, home to that other most infamous fingerprint fuck-up beside Brandon Mayfield. I was very nervous that she was going to warn me off or tell me I was full of it, but instead she wrote, Giving expert analysis in court when I did, I would fervently hope no one would ask me about my fingerprint identification and 100% certainty. She went on not just to give me a good deal of information on fingerprinting, but more importantly, the confidence that, yes, the data shows what the data shows. So, why is the state of forensic science so bad? And what can we do about it? I think the most basic problem with forensics is that virtually none of its parts, with the exception of DNA, were developed as science. Science is dispassionate, aimed at testing and verifying or dismissing hypotheses about the nature of things. Science is testable. It provides us with roughly quantifiable levels of confidence about different ideas. But forensic techniques weren't discovered as part of the scientific process. They were developed as tools for an ends, proving people are guilty of crimes. And that goal is also present in most crime lab incentive structures. Most work for police and prosecutors. Many are in fact part of the police or prosecutor's offices, or else they're hired by them, or even receive payment based on how many hits or convictions they provide. Each of those things creates an obvious and insidious incentive to find evidence against suspects. In many crime labs, forensic testing isn't even blinded. A fingerprint analyst might know that a set of prints belongs to a suspect and even know about other evidence or suspicions about them before they do the matching. The system is practically designed to build bad cases. Those are just some of the problems that exist before we get to the trial phase. At trial, the forensic deck is heavily stacked for the prosecution, seeing as they typically have access to the state-sponsored crime lab. Even if a defendant is able to hire their own expert witnesses, it's unlikely that those witnesses are going to cast doubt on their very own field. Two blood spatter analysts might disagree on what the supposed science says, but neither of them is going to argue against blood spatter analysis itself. It would cost them their jobs. Frequently, though, even if a defendant has the resources to hire their own experts, the experts aren't there to be hired. Police and prosecution crime labs, which house most of the experts, after all, have a nasty habit of telling their employees, officially or otherwise, that they shouldn't be testifying against their peers. It's the thin blue line, but with scientists. 
In addition to the incentive problems, the other mother issue for forensic science goes back to Fry and Daubert and Jennings. Judges shouldn't be in the position to decide what science or not, because they are not equipped to do that. Even with the Daubert standard, which allows for a greater degree of scientific scrutiny than Fry, judges have typically allowed the same kind of junk science into their courts as ever. And even after the landmark 2009 NAS survey, things still basically didn't change. The NAS laid out a long list of correctives to, as the report's title said, strengthen forensic science in the United States. Their recommendations included the formation of a National Institute of Forensic Sciences to oversee the field, making crime labs independent from police and prosecution offices, blinding forensic analysts, heightening accreditation, randomly and regularly testing analysts, and, more importantly than anything else, actually systematically researching the forensics techniques used in investigations and courtrooms for efficacy. Professor Roger Koppel and journalist Radley Balco, who has done more heavy lifting on exposing problems in forensic science than any other reporter out there, bar none, add a few more recommendations onto those. They suggest that there should be public defenders, but for forensics, an independent investigator's office for indigent defendants. They suggest that crime labs should have their work randomly shipped out to other labs to cross-check results for consistency. They also say, quite cleverly, that results from labs and individual experts should be monitored statistically for anomalies. Over the last 20 years, multiple experts, labs, and even entire jurisdictions have been exposed as regularly and dependably giving bad results. Comparing hit rates across the field could weed out corrupt and inept actors. I have one more recommendation to humbly add to those of Koppel, Balco, and the National Academy of Sciences. And to make it, I have to tell you one more story, which I'm sorry to say is the most disturbing of them all. And I hope you will listen to it anyway. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It was two days before Christmas, December 23rd, 1991, in the small town of Corsicana, Texas. Early in the morning, 11-year-old Buffy Barbie was playing in her backyard when she smelled smoke. She went inside and told her mother, and the two of them went up the street to investigate. What they found was a one-story wooden bungalow enveloped in smoke and flames. On the front porch was their neighbor, 23-year-old Cameron Todd Willingham. Covered in soot, his hair and eyebrows singed off. He screamed, My babies are burning up, and told Mrs. Barbie to call the fire department. Firemen arrived just after the flames blew out the windows from the children's room, which minutes before, Willingham had tried to enter by breaking out the windows. The police chaplain, George Monahan, was on the scene and tried to take Todd around to the back of one of the trucks to get him away from the fire and to calm him down. But soon a firefighter, with an oxygen mask, exited the house carrying his two-year-old daughter, Amber. As she was being given CPR, Willingham charged over at her and then for the house, where his other children 
one-year-old twins, Carmen and Cameron, were still inside. Monahan and another officer restrained and eventually handcuffed him for his own safety. Monahan received a black eye for his trouble. Cameron Todd Willingham was brought to the hospital, where he was told that all three of his children had expired of smoke inhalation. The remains of the twins had been badly burnt. Four days later, Corsicana Assistant Fire Chief Douglas Fogg, a 20-year certified arson investigator, and Manuel Vasquez, one of Texas's leading fire marshals, were given the job of determining how this horrible tragedy had happened. They walked the perimeter of the house, making notes and taking photographs before entering and beginning what, at court, Vasquez called a systematic method for collecting information. They entered through the back door. The kitchen was marked by heat and smoke damage, but not burnt itself. Further in, they reached the house's main hall, leading to the master bedroom, the living room, and finally the children's room, where Carmen and Cameron had died. Past that was the front door, that led to the porch at which the Barbies had found Cameron Todd Willingham, shirtless and caked in black soot. Amber had been found in the master bedroom, where Willingham contended he had been sleeping when he awoke to her screams of, Daddy, Daddy. According to him, he hadn't realized she was in the room with him when he had left her to die. Todd Willingham told investigators that his wife, Stacy, had left the house around 9 in the morning to get Christmas presents for the children at the local Salvation Army. Shortly after, the twins began crying, and Todd got up to give them a bottle. He put the safety gate across their door, checked on Amber, who was still asleep, and went back to bed for a nap. The next thing he knew, Amber was crying for him, and he opened his eyes to find only smoke and heat. He screamed for her to get out of the house, but received no response. He got up, stumbled into the hallway, and was hit by an opaque wall of rancid black. He said he got down on his hands and knees and tried to make it to the twins' room, but the heat was so intense that it lit his hair on fire. He said he had felt around on the ground trying to locate them, but couldn't. Finally, fearing he would pass out and die, he escaped through the corridor and out the front door, where Diane Barbie found him catching his breath. He said that while she was running to call the fire department, he made another attempt to get back in for his children. But Fogg and Vasquez weren't buying it. Inside the house, they had found three separate V patterns, places where the smoke shot up in a way that indicated points of ignition, meaning that the fire had been started in three separate places independently. As they walked the main corridor, they noticed a burn pattern that traveled from the main hall into the children's room, very low to the ground, with puddle-like shapes on the floor, which led out to the front porch, signs that an accelerant had been poured over the carpet. On the concrete porch, where Willingham had been spotted, there was a brown stain, like lighter fluid had burnt on it. When Fogg and Vasquez questioned Willingham, they asked if he had put on shoes before fleeing the house. He said he hadn't, but the bottoms of his feet, having run across the accelerant-soaked floor, were unburned. Two weeks after the fire, a SWAT team forced Todd and Stacy's car off the road and arrested him at gunpoint for arson and three counts of premeditated murder. At trial, witnesses, including Barbie and Monahan, the chaplain, testified that Willingham had acted peculiarly the morning of the fire. Some said he seemed too emotional, others not emotional at all. 
but all found him suspicious. The prosecution talked extensively about his taste in heavy metal and his band posters decked with skulls and grim reapers. They painted Willingham as a lazy, selfish, and sociopathic monster who despised his children because they got in the way of his desire to constantly drink beer and listen to ACDC. A jailhouse informant named Johnny Webb said that Willingham had confessed to spraying lighter fluid around the house and setting the fire. The DA offered a deal. If Willingham would plead guilty, he'd be spared the death penalty. But Cameron Todd Willingham refused to say he had murdered his babies. So the case went to trial in August of 1992, where Fogg and Vasquez delivered their unequivocal expert opinions that the fire had been arson, started by Willingham, to murder his three children. Prosecution also called a psychologist named Tim Gregory to the stand, who testified that Cameron Todd Willingham had all the trademarks of a sociopath. One of the key facts Gregory cited was a Led Zeppelin poster Willingham had hung in the utility closet. Said Gregory, Many times individuals that have a lot of this type of art have interest in satanic-type activities. Gregory had no specific training or publishing in sociopathy. His private practice focused on family counseling. He had never met Cameron Todd Willingham. The defense called only one witness, Todd and Stacy's babysitter, who said she didn't believe he could have killed the girls. The trial lasted just two days. The jury deliberated for just an hour, and Cameron Todd Willingham was sentenced to death. Seven years later, a Houston playwright named Elizabeth Gilbert volunteered to pen pal through an organization opposing the death penalty. She was matched up with Cameron Todd Willingham. In the spring of 1999, she went to visit him at the Huntsville Penitentiary. Stacy had initially stayed by his side and even petitioned Governor Ann Richards for clemency, but a year after his conviction, she filed for divorce. For more than half a decade, Cameron Todd Willingham had seen no one but his parents, who came up to visit once a month. Over time, Gilbert and Willingham became friends. They exchanged letters, and she visited on a handful of occasions. She eventually asked him about the fire, about which Willingham had always insisted and continued to insist he was innocent. Gilbert had been warned that convicts frequently tried to con or deceive their pen pals, and she wasn't naive. She didn't believe Willingham. On the other hand, she was curious, and eventually she made her way to Corsicana to take a look at the trial transcripts for herself. Elizabeth Gilbert didn't know anything about arson investigation, but she found the witness testimonies interesting. Most of the people on the scene the morning of the fire were interviewed right after, and then interviewed again after Willingham's arrest and at trial. And between those statements, their stories changed considerably. Take Diane Barbie and her daughter Buffy. In their initial account, Buffy said that Todd had tried to break windows to get into the children's room. The second time around, there's no mention of that. Diane says that Todd had not attempted to get back inside the house to rescue his children. And the third time around, once Todd had been arrested and publicly charged, she said that he could have gotten into the house to rescue his daughters, but had chosen not to. When Chaplain Monahan was first interviewed, he described Willingham as devastated and relayed that he had gotten that black eye trying to restrain him from running back into the burning building. But once he was a suspect, Monahan instead described him as calculated and said that he had a gut feeling Willingham was to blame. Another witness said that he seemed to be more concerned about his car taking damage than his children and had moved it out of the driveway to protect it. But Willingham had said 
he was worried the car would catch fire and explode if he left it close to the house. The deeper she looked, and the more questions she asked, the more Elizabeth Gilbert began to suspect that Cameron Todd Willingham was telling the truth. She interviewed his parents, and even Stacy, who said that while she had moved on to a man who treated her better than Todd had, she still didn't believe he had killed their daughters. Finally, she visited the jailhouse snitch, Johnny Webb, who maintained that Willingham had confessed to him even when pressed about the myriad inconsistencies and improbabilities of his story. A few months later, he recanted his testimony, and then again withdrew the recantation. When David Gran interviewed him for The New Yorker in 2009, Webb said, It's very possible I misunderstood what he said. Being locked up in that little cell makes you kind of crazy. My memory is in bits and pieces. I was on a lot of medication at the time. Everyone knew that. Then he asked Gran, point blank, The statute of limitations has run out on perjury, hasn't it? By the time Elizabeth Gilbert was getting the sinking feeling that Willingham was innocent, most of his avenues for redress had already run out. She helped him work up an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but they refused to hear the case in December of 2003. After that, he was given his date of execution, February 17, 2004, at or after 6 p.m., a Tuesday. There was only one off-ramp left and precious little time to change lanes into it. They would have to appeal to Governor Rick Perry for clemency. Yes, that Rick Perry. In January, Gilbert contacted Dr. Gerald Hurst, a Cambridge-educated chemist who had invented the Mylar balloon, an improved version of Whiteout, and the plastic explosive Astrolite. In 1996, he had been asked to review the evidence against convicted arsonist Sonia Casey, who had been sentenced three years earlier in the fire death of her stepfather, Bill Richardson. Hearst concluded that she had not been involved in the fire and helped get her released in 1998. After that, he began doing regular pro bono investigations on arson cases he believed had been handled incorrectly. He agreed, with little time to spare, to look at Willingham's. He noticed something was up almost immediately. In Manuel Vasquez's time at the stand, he said that he had investigated between 12 and 1,500 fires over the course of his career. Most all of them, he said, had been arsons. That was bizarre. Either 99.999% of all fires Vasquez had looked at were started intentionally, or the dude didn't know what he was talking about. Hearst rightly figured it was the latter. Deeper into Vasquez and Fogg's testimonies, Hearst found bigger problems. They had said that the heat of the fire proved that an accelerant had been used, but Hearst knew that there was no evidence that accelerants made fires burn hotter. The two had said that the spiderweb-like patterns of broken glass in the house's windows were evidence that the fire had burnt very fast, another sign of arson, but Hearst knew that a team of fire investigators had proven that the so-called crazed glass effect was formed not from rapid heating, but from rapid cooling. When firefighters hosed windows down in hot fires, the glass cooled and cracked. Everything about the initial arson investigation was wrong. The V-shapes didn't show ignition points, the puddle patterns didn't show accelerant pouring, the brown spot on the porch didn't show lighter fluid had burned it. All of it was wrong. Were Fogg and Vasquez liars? Had they framed Cameron Todd Willingham on purpose? No, Gerald Hurst concluded. They were just following what they had learned about fire investigation. Except that everything they had ever learned 
about fire investigation, like virtually everyone else who worked in the field, was nonsense. After examining the evidence, materials, and floor plans, Dr. Gerald Hurst gave his expert opinion that the fire had likely started in the children's room, probably from a space heater that the Willinghams kept there. When Todd escaped out the front door, he had created a source of oxygen for the fire, which then rushed out through the hallway behind him, creating the so-called puddle patterns on the floor. It was flashover, the point at which things go from there's a fire in the room to the room is on fire. Vasquez and Fogg had reported more than 20 indicators of arson. Hearst had knocked down all but one, a positive gas chromatograph reading for mineral spirits on the porch. But photos showed a small, smoky Joe grill had been stored there, with a bottle of lighter fluid beside it. With the clock ticking, Dr. Gerald Hurst wrote up his report and sent it off to the Board of Pardons and Paroles. He'd written it in such a hurry that he hadn't gone back to correct his typos, but that hardly mattered. Anyone who read it would know that there was little chance Cameron Todd Willingham had started the fire that killed his three daughters. The Board of Pardons and Paroles did not read it. Or else they did but ignored it. There's record of receipt of Hearst's report, but no mention of it in their deliberation. They unanimously denied his petition for clemency. Since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles has granted two clemency petitions in capital cases. Two in 45 years. On February 17, 2004, Cameron Todd Willingham met his parents behind the glass to say goodbye. He confessed to them that he had lied about what he did the morning of the fire. He had not actually made it into the children's room to search for Cameron and Carmen. The fire had been too hot. I just didn't want people to think I was a coward, he said. He regretted that he had never much hugged his father when he had the chance. At four o'clock in the afternoon, he was served barbecue ribs, onion rings, fried okra, beef enchiladas, and two slices of lemon cream pie. As he finished his meal, Word came down that Rick Perry had refused his stay request. His parents broke down in tears. Todd told them, Don't be sad, Mama. In 55 minutes, I'm a free man. I'm going home to see my kids. He was then taken into a green room and strapped to a gurney. He had asked that his parents and family not view the execution, but when he looked out, he saw that Stacy was there, looking back at him. He had written her earlier, asking her to let him be buried next to their children. Stacy had recently been convinced that Todd, in fact, had killed Amber, Cameron, and Carmen. She was not told about Dr. Hurst's report. She wrote Todd back to say she refused. This is the third part of a three-part series on the history of forensics. It's called How to Solve a Murder, but has up until now showed little ability to deliver on its promise. Until this moment, the tools used to deduce our culprits have been faulty, and some degree of doubt has penetrated every conclusion. We can go back and gawk at the people of the past, 
who tried defendants with ordeals and superstitions. But while the tools available to us now are better than theirs, our overconfidence in them and our own lack of criticality towards them is the same. There is only one murder that this series knows how to solve with sure confidence. The one that took place at 6.20 p.m. on February 17th, 2004. Who murdered Cameron Todd Willingham? We did. Music by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, Kevin McLeod, and Ben Sound. Voice talent by Heather Chrysler, Carla Garcia, and Steve Peebles. I am even more than usual indebted to a large number of writers, journalists, agencies, and organizations who reported, collected, and published the stories and data in this episode. Particularly, Leora Smith made the first and most comprehensive deep dive into Herbert McDowell and his blood spatter analysis for ProPublica. Her story was also carried in the New York Times Magazine with some additional information. Rob Warden wrote the most comprehensive document on Gary Dodson for Northwestern's Bloom Legal Clinic Center on Wrongful Convictions. In general, the Bloom Legal Clinic was an invaluable source, as was the Innocence Project and the National Registry of Exonerations at University of Michigan. The watershed reporting on Cameron Todd Willingham was done primarily by Steve Mills and Maurice Posley for the Chicago Tribune. A larger and more thorough accounting of his life and death followed from David Gran in The New Yorker. Radley Balco is currently with The Washington Post, but has been writing extensively about issues in police forensics for years, through 10 years at Huffington Post and Reason as well, and plenty more freelance gigs besides. He is, I feel confident saying, the foremost expert on these matters outside of academia. I'll link to all of these places on the website, constantpodcast.com, as well as the 2009 NAS report. And a special thanks to Isabel for her help and encouragement on this story. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where after a seemingly endless string of wrongful capital convictions were discovered, Republican Governor George Ryan commuted all death penalty cases in 2003 until such a time that the state could be sure it was not executing innocent people. A time that, I dearly hope, people will never convince themselves has come. This has been The Constant.